Hello. Hey, Simon. <laughs> Hello? Hey, Simon. It's Skyler. Hey, Simon. Hello, Simon. What's up, Simon? Hello. Simon. How are you doing? Hey. Hello. Hey, Simon. Hello, Simon. Hello, Simon. This is Conversations with Storytellers, a podcast of wisdom, thoughts, and folk and fairy tales from our elders, and I am your host, Simon Brooks. A meeting with professional storytellers. I met Sebastian Lockwood a long time ago, and we chatted at events and talked about stories, but we never really sat down to get to know each other. Sebastian is born of British parents, is actually Canadian, but to hear him you would think he was very British indeed. We both decided that we have now transatlantic accents. If you like myths, then you are like Sebastian. He revels in them. I have heard from many women that he also has great hair. Sebastian and I met in his home in New Hampshire, sat next to a crackling fire, and we just started talking about his books, first of all. Anyway, sit down and make yourself comfortable for my conversation with Sebastian Lockwood. Just for the record, I'm with Sebastian Lockwood. Christopher Sebastian Crosby Lockwood at your service. Really? Yes. That's a lot of names. I know. Unfortunately, you know, I was Christopher Sebastian Crosby. Crosby was a family name. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, I got called Sebastian instead of Christopher. And Christopher is a wonderful saint. He carries people across rivers, but they de-sainted him about 20 years ago, I think. Really? And then, you know, Sebastian, God, he winds up tied to a tree full of arrows. <laughs> so you always see these statues of Sebastian who looks like a pincushion. <laughs> a real martyr. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, some of those martyr stories are pretty heavy, pretty heavy things. I would say so. I mean, I... I remember as a boy, you know, I was sent to Catholic boarding schools, which was a whole story unto itself, as you can imagine, Catholic boarding schools in the, you know, late 50s. Um, but, you know, doing the Stations of the Cross, talk about a story. You know, you had to kneel and study all 12 moments of the torture, you know, leading oh, up yeah. to the crucifixion. And you're doing that at the age of 10 <laughs> in a cold church in um, shorts stone on, a, on a little kneeler with straw, you know. Oh, okay, so you did have a kneeler, you weren't on the stone floor. <laughs> You're on the back, I don't know. <laughs> oh, yeah, oh my yeah. gosh. So was it, so when I was at school, um, at that age, we weren't allowed to wear long trousers except for it, in winter. It was all shorts. It was all shorts, right? Yeah. It was the same for you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I did, I have noticed that we have, we have some, some similar books I have, so I have that that Virgil Enid book. Oh, okay. I have that the John Gardner Gilgamesh book. Excellent. I also have John Gardner's a wild man. Yeah, right. Wild man. Yeah, and Stephen Mitchell's and Seamus Heaney's yeah. Beowulf. Oh, both okay. of those. Yeah. But yeah, I, there's there's a few others that I've been noticing. Yeah. I got you know recognize the spines. I got to drink with Seamus Heaney a couple of times. Oh my gosh, you did not. I did too. And one of them is so funny. One was I knew a guy called Alfie Alcorn, a novelist, and, and Seamus was good friends with Alfie, so when he'd come to town, he'd stay at Alfie's house, and Alfie'd have big parties. And 
I would I'd get to go to the parties and hang out and talk to Seamus and drink scotch with him and you know he was always so sweet ah Sebastian <laughs> ah Jesus Sebastian I once said to him we're talking about some novel and I was pinching a who and I said you know Jesus Seamus I mean it was about 200 pages too long and he said oh Christ Sebastian don't you know the man was just showing his personality <laughs> <laughs> We both flirted with the same woman. He said, you go on, Sebastian, you're younger. <laughs> and then the time I ran into him, it was so funny, was I was living in over by Davis Square somewhere, and down the end of Kirkland Street, there was a laundromat. And this is in Somerville? Yeah. yeah okay. And across the laundromat from Kirkland Street was a real heavy-duty, southy-type, Boston bar, you know, just about as heavy as you could get. And so I'd gone down there and um, I think my wife, Katrina, had gone in to put laundry in and I go over and Seamus is sitting at the bar nursing a glass of scotch and I'm like, Seamus, what are you doing? Oh, Jesus, my wife's over the way doing the laundry. Oh, no way. <laughs> so I sat in, it was called the Kirkland Street Cafe. So I sat in the Kirkland Street Cafe with a bunch of just the heaviest townies around, you could imagine. And Seamus And then chatting with Seamus. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so cool. That's yeah. really neat. I love, I love stories like that. Yeah, you hung around in the right circles. I did not. <laughs> well, I was, yeah, I was very lucky in a way. I did run into a lot of interesting people. <laughs> I think part of that was in the, you know, in the in the sixties and seventies and eighties. It was a pretty small club, so if you were in London, you were just going to run into people, you know, at parties and wherever, right. you know. And, and sort of the same in New York and Boston, and right, yeah. It changed once disco hit. The whole world changed after disco. Yeah, it did. <laughs> oh my gosh! I think there was some sort of need for disco. Yeah, just to dance and not think. Yeah, right. Yeah, but boy, we we needed when punk rock came out. It was like it was about time, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. When Elton John yeah. and Kiki D oh, started get rid singing, of the "Don't Go Breaking My," it was like, yeah. all right, we need to change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. <laughs> Oh, something you could cut your teeth on. Yeah, yeah right. Something you could chew. Yeah. yeah. My stepfather, he wanted to send me to... I was a bit of a handful, um, which is no surprise to most people that know me. But um, my stepfather, he wanted to send me away to boarding school. It would have changed your accent. It would have given you a different attitude. You'd probably be a much more bitter person. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. If I, I don't know. Maybe. I, I, I don't know. I, yeah. Well, I had it because my my mother died when I was very young. So my mother died when I was seven. Mm. And at the time, I had actually been born in Canada. And I'd lived in Canada till I was six. And then we'd moved to Belgium. But, but were both your parents British, though? Both are British. Okay, all right. And my father worked for Lever Brothers, so he got a job in Canada. And then I think I was... So I was born as soon as they arrived in Canada. And we lived in Toronto until I was five and a half, six. And then we moved house to Belgium. And while we were living in Belgium, I was sent to French schools, which was a very weird experience because I didn't speak French. And um, while we were there, my mother died of breast cancer. Mm. And they didn't know what to do with me. 
so at the end of she died in the spring and at the end of that summer I was sent to the oratory prep school in Bournemouth so I arrived at the oratory prep school I'd, I'd done my growing up in Canada but I'd been in Belgium for three years so and because of being in the French school I was way behind with reading and spelling and math so when I got to this little boarding school they thought I was you know basically retarded because I couldn't write and read and spell with the other kids. Wow. I could speak French. <laughs> I could memorize Latin. And I could tell a f story faster than any of them. And I had very fast fists. Because, oh, yeah. I was the, because I came from Canada, everyone wanted to beat up the lumberjack. <laughs> <laughs> For so our listeners, I yeah. have to say that Sebastian is not really doesn't really look like a stereotypical lumberjack. <laughs> you threaten me, I will. <laughs> so, so everyone wanted to beat up a lumberjack, and, yeah, yeah. and so you learned how to fight. And tell stories, I think, yeah. yeah. And try and put a story together to figure it out. And I was two years at that awful school, and then I was sent to a crammer's because they didn't think that I would be able to pass the common entrance exam. So I don't know if it was there when you were coming up, but at the age of 11, you had to sit the common entrance exam. And the yeah. common entrance exam decided whether you were going to go to a grammar school or a boarding school, whether you were going to go on to university or whether you were going to be a schmuck. Right, so... At I, the age of 11. Right, right. So when I was going through school, it was the 11 plus. The 11 plus, right. And it was whether we went to grammar school or the or secondary, secondary modern. modern. Yes. So already the, the standards yeah. were being dropped. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and, and enormous predictions made about your life. Yeah. At oh, that yeah, very at the age moment. of 11, yeah. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. yeah. Because right. if you went to grammar school, you'd probably end up going to somewhere like Oxford or Cambridge yeah. or a very good college. Yeah. If you went to secondary modern, you might go to a tech college. Yes, You exactly. might go to an art college. You might exactly. go to... You but know. you would be told and given the message all along right. yeah, yeah, that yeah. that other life was for other people, not for you. You right. should just stay in line and do your job and don't make a fuss. You know? right. And you'll get a good cup of tea and a nice retirement. <laughs> <laughs> you'll be content. Yeah, the golden fob watch, right? <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, dear. Yeah. Uh, so it was a very sort of mixed up cultural coming because I had that Canadian bit. I'd mm -hmm. been in Belgium and I literally could speak French as a kid. I'd been really indoctrinated heavily into the Latin mass. And sort of in between summers, I'd be shipped off to places. And the most likely place I was shipped off to was um, North Norfolk, um, Blakeney. And Blakeney is a tiny beautiful little village right on the northernmost tip of Norfolk with a huge tidal harbor, you know, one of those tides that just is immense as it comes and goes. And I summered in that house and in the, in the Cramer school, mm -hmm. so that also did a weird thing on me because, you know, I was told that I was not bright all those years and I kept thinking, I think I can think. <laughs> But in that crammer, I raised an owl. I stole an owl and raised it. And that's the very owl right there. That's the picture of it. That was the owl that I stole out of a beech tree and raised up. And um, that's a whole story unto itself. Oh, I bet. 
And um, well, I'm thinking Kestrel uh, for an A. If uh, you say that, <laughs> right, Barry well, Bates' book. Yes, yes, I were beautiful. Yeah, yeah, he's incredible. So yes, I mean it was an extraordinary experience like that. I stole an owl, baby owl, out of a nest, taught it how to fly, and then when I finished that school, I was told that I was now going to go back to Canada and go to a boarding school in Canada. So I had to leave the owl in Blakeney as in a you know like a twelve-year-old boy. I rode a train alone with this owl in my tuck box all the way to Blakeney. And left it at my aunt Manny's house in Blakeney. Oh, okay. So it had a good home. And, and my it. uncle Chris Rhodes. So you were like the original Harry Potter. Well, <laughs> I think the thing was that raising that that stealing that owl and raising it, that you know, so that became my first story. And I remember being sent down. Speaking of secondary moderns, I was sent down to my aunt Mary in Ramsgate, and she was a secondary modern school teacher. And. <clears throat> It was very weird staying with Aunt Mary and my um, grandmother. These were etiolated ladies from another era, you know. And Mary was very strict and very Catholic, but she she would take me to school with her because they didn't know what else to do with me. And she'd sit me in the front of the class on a little table aside because I was writing my book and I was writing the story of Nod the Owl. So there I was in my little boarding school outfit surrounded by these secondary modern kids off to the side and they just said he's writing a book about an owl and then when we went out in the playground you know <laughs> it'd be like who are you <laughs> what are you made of yeah <laughs> so, right yeah i think that was the very first instinct of that gave me a great story to tell the right. owl story right and so in a way you know the the sort of the channel, originally I thought I wanted to write novels and I worked very hard at writing novels but I couldn't get the voice right and I couldn't get the feel I wanted and then I discovered storytelling. And how old, you, how old were you when that happened? Well, when I formally started to tell stories, really right. stood in front of an audience rather than just telling, yeah, boy, I want to say I was probably in my late 20s, early 30s so that's pretty young now. Is that young? I thought well, it was I, pretty I, well, late. Well, I mean, there are some people that, that start storytelling, but yeah, but don't like, you know, they do it informally. Yeah. I, young, at a younger age. I, I mean, there are other people as well, like um, uh, Claire, Claire Murphy from yeah. Ireland. Yeah. You know, she started in college. Yeah. And she, she's just a powerhouse yeah. storyteller. She's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I did literary performances. Like one, I would do Finnegan's Wake from memory. That was one of the other things. Is I, I realized that that even though I was challenged with writing, I had a I had a memory which was enormous that I was able to memorize chunks of material. So, was it a photographic memory, or is it just you could retain the information? I think it's just retaining. Well, you know, don't you, Canada? Haven't I told you? Every telling has a tailing, and that's the he and the she of it. Look, look, the dusk is growing, and my cold chair's gone ashly. Filou, filou, what age is that? Tis soon as late, tis ages now. Tis ages now since I or air one last saw Waterhouse's cloth. They took it asunder, I heard them sigh. Oh, my back, my back, my back. I want to go to Aixley Pains. 
ping pong, there's the bell for sexaloiters and can shep the descenders pray. Bang! Ring in the dew, ring out the new, and God of our revert thy showers, amen! <laughs> you say that? No, I. <laughs> so it goes on. I'm not sure if I could read that straight, let <laughs> alone recite it. That's, that's incredible. <laughs> well, I got very distracted by Joyce because, you know, I was just overwhelmed by Ulysses and amazed by Finnegan's way can try to write like that and ah. of course there's only one Joyce yeah. everything else is pretending you've got to get your own voice and right. I think that's what, and I, now I find I appreciate really clear strong storytelling and writing you know I'm not yeah. that interested in that atmospheric and onomatopoeic beauty you know it's like tell it's, me I need story you know and I yeah. need a hero I can root for or a heroine you know yeah yeah Someone I can identify with and root for, like Odysseus, you know. Yes. Yeah. He's a good fella. Yeah, I'm, I've been reading some Sinbad lately. Yeah. And he's an interesting fella. Isn't he? Yeah. But it's all, it's also, uh, yeah, the repetition of, and then we crashed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's like, not again. <laughs> really? <It's, laughs> can can something out. else happen? <laughs> and then I found this treasure and I came Cook, back and then I thought, the it's time to go fish. on it. Tried yeah. to go on a journey again, and we crashed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but they're good stories. Oh yeah, they're really good yeah. stories. Yeah, I mean, all of those, you know, thousand one nights. Just, yeah, oh. yeah, an amazing language, and I, I really love Richard Burton. Okay. Now there are some people who really don't like him. You know, um, T. E. Lawrence gives birth in the back of his hand and says he's a complete imposter and <laughs> he's really incredibly mean about Burton wow. and other people sort of try but you read his life and this man was amazing I mean and he he had that ability like Lawrence to go native he could right. put the clothes on and sit in a circle and become one of wherever he was and that's how he learns his Arabic and that's how he learns all the 20 variations he has of it and he's just unbelievable. He marches through jungles and, you know, all that stuff. And he's a swashbuckler, you know. Right. And um, I think his language is beautiful. Right. One of Queen Victoria's favorites, right? Was he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think he was popular in the court. Ah, uh, sure. okay. Yeah. Okay. That's why Lawrence probably hated him. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> I mean, Lawrence himself is quite a story. Yes, right. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable, these men, just incomprehensibly brave and adventurous right. and erudite. You know. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Botanists and entomologists. Right. I mean, what, where are these people now? I know. I, th I think, you know, I, I've been thinking about this lately because, you know, there are these amazing people that, that used to exist that are the, you know, these icons of the past, yeah. right? Yeah. And we don't seem to have them now or if so we don't know who they are and I wonder if it's because in those days you know whether it's Victorian ages or even like the 50s and 60s yeah everything was a lot slower then yeah so we weren't filling our mind up with yeah. crap basically and so there was this space to do these other things and play around but now it's like nose, nose to the grindstone well, it's the, all it's this information like thrown at us I mean I'm afraid to say part of it is we're not at war. Those figures tend to come out of war a lot, like Nelson, you know, or well, like or like Washington. I guess, know, but or I'm, superhuman feats of, of war, and then becoming extraordinary leaders. So, to me, I'm I'm fascinated by heroes, and that's. 
part of why I tell all those stories because each of those stories contains a magnificent yeah. hero. And each of those stories being the Odyssey, being and well, the well, well, Gilgamesh, and Gilgamesh, and Homer's Beowulf. Odyssey, um, Beowulf. Um, when you get to the Arabian Nights, the hero figure is different because actually the hero of the Arabian Nights is Shahrazad. She's the heroine of the Arabian Nights, and she's and a lot of the, the women in the stories are the, are the heroes too. And yes, I mean you get that you know fabulous story. I forget if it's the end of Sinbad or one of them where it's the slave girl saves the household, makes a fortune, marries the son and puts aside enough money for the family for five generations or something. Is that Ali Baba? I think it's the end of Ali Baba. Yeah, yes, yeah. everything's a disaster. Right. And then she comes along and saves the day. It's, it's yeah. just extraordinary storytelling. Yeah. It's, it's hold your breath every minute. And it, it moves so fast. Yes, and then the, the last one I didn't mention is Monkey, the Journey to the West. Right, which you're working on right which now. Which I'm working on right now. I've got, a, I've got two podcasts I'm really proud of. One is called Blowing Up Stumps. <laughs> which, is that with your son? <laughs> no, that's with Matt Guile, who's a storyteller from Maine, from Rutherford, Maine. Oh, okay. And I met Matt on a program. I think I was a teacher at a, at a brief program he did, and he has become a great storyteller. And so he has very... Uh, he has wonderful stories about growing up in real deep rural setting Maine, right. blowing up stumps, <laughs> right. living in a trailer, you know, all that. And um, so we're taking his stories from New England of coming of age, the first time he handled a gun, for instance. Right. And then we're paralleling my stories coming of age in 1959, North Norfolk, and I tell the story of the first time my Uncle Chris gave me a gun and told me I could shoot anything I want, except for, uh, he, said, he said, no, he said, the only things you can shoot are coipus, starlings, and rabbits. Ah, yeah. And sent me off with a twenty-two. So I tell, and Matt tells the story of the first time he handled a twenty-two. So it's just, and then the parallels of that, and that, that, Chris Rhodes, who gave me that gun, um, he he was a well-known actor in England. He was in El Cid. He uh -huh. when El Cid has the great tournament battle and fights, um, does the fight in the big tournament scene. Right. That's my uncle Chris. He's fighting with. Oh wow! In Colditz, Chris is the last guy to make it over the wall. But he doesn't make it, he gets shot. Oh. So I went to see the film the next day thinking he'd get a better jump at it. <laughs> Come on, Chris, you can do it this time. You'll get a better so, start. And how old were you when you went to see that film? Ten. Something oh, okay. like that. It disturbed me for life seeing him. Because I had a big affection for Chris. He frightened a lot of people. Yeah. Because he was a big, burly, powerful man. He, he had all this... He'd been a commando, dropped behind the lines. And he was oh, wow. Sir Christopher Rhodes. And he was an actor. And he was stunningly good-looking. And married to my Aunt Manny, who was very beautiful. And he was rough, though, with kids and anyone else. But he had a soft spot for me. And, you know, it was pretty interesting. So, so that was, again, you know, more storytelling, I think, because... I was really vagabonded after that in life. My father didn't really know what to do, so he just kept sending me to various summer things and boarding schools. 
Did you have a relationship with your father? Uh, he was a strange Edwardian character, very distant, you know. Yeah. I take a rather dim view of that, dear boy. <laughs> well, it's all right to talk about art, but you wouldn't want to be an artist after all. Not art type of thing, you know. Yeah. Always buttoned, yeah. You like the heroes and the heroines. What, why do you think that is? Well, I think you want to... When I hear a story or when I tell a story, it's an intensely visual experience for me. I'm really living it. I'm in it, alive in it, you know. And I think that's why I told you my favorite, um, my favorite compliment from a 10-year-old boy telling Homer's Odyssey was he came up afterwards and said, I felt like I was there. Oh, yeah, that's the best. Uh, isn't that the best? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And that's how I tell. I'm there when I'm telling. I go into a trance and I I breathe differently and I'm in a I'm in this space and I'm excited about telling and as soon as I tell I can go into this trance and then I don't even think about the language, it just flows out of me. I'm I'm often rather surprised by a turn of phrase and think, that's a good one. Yes. <laughs> Where'd you get that? Oh, that's, now where are you going? <laughs> and it's a slightly out-of-body experience like that, I'm watching myself trance through the story because I'm actually seeing it and living it as it happens. And so I think that experience, again, is the, the impulse to storytelling almost more so than novel writing because novel writing tends to be much, much more reflective on the page you know you'll yeah. engage in philosophy and long descriptions etc whereas in the storytelling you really want to create this vivid picture and then for me the language and the language of all the epics I've talked about monkey um, the Arabian Nights you know uh, Homer there's something about that language that's so beautiful. Mm-hmm. It just yeah. flows and rolls and rhymes, and you know, the, the, it's like a meta language they're writing in. You know, yeah. almost the older it gets, the more magnificent the language. I mean, Gilgamesh is so visual, you know, and you can smell and feel and touch yeah. it. And so when I do the language myself, I want to put my audience into that same, and that's where. Having a having a voice with a mid-Atlantic accent is very useful because I can really I can use my bo- my voice like warm butter on toast, you know. It's a useful accent for the melody and rhyme of storytelling because when you're doing the long vowels, they just sound better. Yeah. Bath sounds better than bath. Yeah. You can you can just lay on that a you know and give it a long trough, which is hard to do when you're. So the American accent tends to, you know, chop against the word. The English Euro accent tends to elongate the word, you know. Yeah. So it adds to that sort of mellifluous quality you want. The, the people that you spent time with growing up, yeah, your aunts and your uncles and grandparents, were they storytellers? No. Or did no. the storytelling really come from your experiences at it, school? It really came from my experiences. I didn't, I didn't encounter storytellers until you know I am thinking it may have been later for me maybe more in my late 30s early 40s because some of the first storytellers I came across and when I came to Boston the second time because I went the first time I was in Boston I spent four years there while I was doing undergraduate at BU 
which was a wonderful time. And then I went to England for two years where I studied at Cambridge doing anthropology with some really great people. And then I came back to Boston. And it was when I came back to Boston, I, I was living just above Harvard Square and I was going to the poetry venues because I was really interested in reading poetry and being a poet. And that's what I was really working on at that point. And that's when I met Brother Blue. And that's when I heard Odds Bodkin. And I think those two were the the one-two punch that were like, maybe um, that's something I wouldn't mind doing. (laughs) Yeah, Brother Blue's amazing. Yes, I had a great time with Brother Blue and Ruth. He, I had a wonderful time with him. Some amazing experiences. Yeah. yeah. So this was the eighties, maybe the early eighties. Yeah, 80s. yeah. When I first was with Brother Blue, he had a venue in the um, beautiful room in the Harvard Divinity, and I had gone there to tell Gilgamesh for the very first time. And I get there, and Brother Blue does his wonderful introduction. You know. And I look on the wall behind me, and there's an enormous map of Iraq and Iran <laughs> just there on the wall, you know. Let me tell the story. Yeah, so, so that's when I really became aware of storytelling as something to do with... Because at that point, in a lot of those poetry venues, um, and at that point in, in Boston, Cambridge, you could go to an open mic reading every night of the week. Yeah. They were just everywhere, and it was so much fun. The, the squawk, you know, yeah. I can't rattle them all off, there's so many. <laughs> and it was starting to shift between poetry and storytelling. Huh. And I got to the place where I preferred to put the poem down and just go. And I was enjoying the improv of that, but then I realized the real joy of improv was telling the Odyssey, you know, and now I'm telling a story that's a Cadillac, that's the Green Arrow. Yeah. yeah. You recall the Green Arrow? It was the steam train that went from London to Scotland. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I was in, I was in comic book land. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> okay, Green that's Arrow. an interesting. Now the steam I'll, train. I'll roll with it. <laughs> yes. Now I do remember. Little yeah. little British boys used to worship that train. I know. Train spotters. Yes. Yeah. yeah. There's pictures of me and my brother in our anoraks next to some of the steam trains. That's great. Living in Worcester, we had the uh, the uh, Seven Valley Railway. Yeah. You know, yeah. so we were always doing that. Well, they were magnificent, and that's well, yeah. that's what I think of Homer as. You know, it's just a mag. You know, I was telling my little stories, and then I got to drive. The green arrow. The big steam train. <laughs> flying. Yeah. yeah. What was the something flying too? The flying something? The Scotsman. Flying, the flying Scotsman. Yeah. Right. See, if you'd said that, I would have known what you're talking yeah. about. Because <laughs> that was the, uh, what was that, the Edinburgh to London, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. At the time, it was like the yeah. fastest train. Yeah. 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 So that was the, you know, the feeling of at first experimenting with doing my, my poems, sort of improv. <laughs> But then realizing I wanted to use, I wanted to tie that improv to a truly, you know, enormous story. And you you take Homer's Odyssey, and it's the cornerstone of Western literature. But what, is that why you chose Odyssey? To if you count? want to know what Western literature is all about, if you want to know what Western philosophy is all about, you start with Homer's Odyssey. Every single piece 
of what matters in Western thinking is in the Odyssey. You know, it just sums it all up. The laws of hospitality. Mm. And the reason Odysseus kills those young men ruthlessly is because they do not obey the laws of hospitality. And that's right at the bottom of all of our philosophy. And one of the wonderful things I love with it is Odysseus and Penelope's relationship. And, you know, we think of women in the ancient world as, you know, not having a, a place, as it were. But one of the things the Greeks felt about marriage was it was very important that the man and the woman be like-minded, that they shared the same sensibility of thinking of mind. And so Penelope thinks like Odysseus, and Odysseus thinks like Penelope, and that's why they're able to survive, and that's why they're so important to each other. They fulfill each other. He fulfills her masculine half, she fulfills his feminine half. And meanwhile, he's going around sleeping with that gets very complicated now right now if Athena came into this room she could blow your clothes off and throw you into that bed and be on you before you thought a snake had attacked you I mean what the hell (laughs) is sleeping with a goddess really I mean come on man it's like now either you're hallucinating and you're having now if in a hallucination you sleep with a goddess are you cheating on your wife if in a dream you sleep with Cersei, do you wake up and say, I, I, I'm afraid I cheated on you last night, I was sleeping with another woman? It was a dream. Is Odysseus in the real world or is he in dreamland? When he starts, he's on an island with a woman who can change into any of his, any of his imaginings she can turn into every night. He wants to go home to Penelope. He wants to get out of heaven. It's He's stuck on an island with an amazing woman who can transform into anything and create anything, but he wants to go home. <laughs> yeah. And he went all through, and so he escapes the sirens, uh, he yeah. escapes Circe, you know. And I mean, yes, he slept with Circe, but she turned his men into pigs, for Christ's sakes. And the only way he could get him back was by sleeping with her. You know? yeah. Lucky he didn't turn into a pig. I mean, those episodes are so wonderful, but are they hallucinations? Were they drug-induced? Interesting questions, these. Or was it the real thing? It's a story. Right. It's a myth. It was so interesting to me when you actually said to me, you know, I didn't think of the epics as myths. And I thought, well, that's funny. We think of it as the origin myth. You know, the... Yeah. The big myth. Yeah, the big myth, Yeah. And that's it for, you know, because Plato, Aristotle, all of their thinking is refinements of Homer. It's extensions of Homeric thought. And Odysseus' whole challenge of who he is, and then you get the other aspect where Odysseus is twice born, like Jesus. Mm -hmm. He goes down to hell. And he walks around in hell and has various experiences and then comes back from hell, making him twice born. And then he has his life that goes on. And so that twice born piece, Gilgamesh is twice born. He goes mm-hmm. to hell and comes back. Right. And that, that is part of the sort of heroic episode, and it happens with Jesus, where, you know, at the end of his life, he'll go down to hell, and he'll spend three days in hell, pardoning people. <laughs> I'm sorry, it was a mistake. <laughs> you can go now. <laughs> before he comes back to sit at the right hand side of 
The Almighty, yeah. yeah. So that experience of being born again, I think, is very fascinating in, in terms of storytelling and um, the imagination. But I think we personally have that journey, that we get to yeah. be born again. And because, you know, one of the things of dealing with age, now I'm on this plateau of 73, you know, it's like you're on this plateau. And one of the things people complain about most in this place in life is regret and loneliness. Yeah. The loneliness is the men and the women you've outlived. Yeah. I can see a long line of men I've outlived, and that becomes a stranger and stranger experience. And then, you know, the regret is, in hindsight, you can see so clearly the mistakes you made, the stupidity, the arrogance, the slap yourself in the head, why? You yeah. Know? Yeah. But if you slap yourself too hard, you'll knock yourself out. So you have to be born again to escape the past and live in the now. And that's what I think I'm constantly trying to do, and the stories get you to live in the now. They're all about yeah. being here now. Right. You know? And so it's what to do with that beast of regret, you know, which is a huge one. Yeah. Wow. There you go, folks. There's something to ponder on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh. Well, I think it's because we're telling these stories, but we're living our own life story. And so I had sort of avoided my personal story. And then doing this podcast with the wonderful Matt, um, you know, it's getting me to tell my childhood stories and coming of age stories. And I'm really enjoying that now. I don't think I would have enjoyed it so much 20 years ago, but this feels like a great time to be doing it. You yeah. Know, polishing the chestnuts, you know. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> And one of the annoying things with age is it gets fresher. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yes. I think your childhood, your childhood memories become so immediate and just, you know, so overwhelming. I find it more intense. But then, as I say, I'm having a very strange experience with memory because of coming back from this stroke. Yeah, yeah. And one, so two of the things I think about is I really think it's important for people to tell formal stories before they tell personal stories. Because once you've told formal stories, you have the sense of structure and rhythm and power and shape and all those things. Whereas the personal story, you're just following your chronology. Right. You know, you're saying, well, this happened and that happened and that happened because that's how it happened. But really, to storytell, you want to take that material and shape it, you yeah, know, and, and, and give it all of that. So it's so useful to have the background of formal stories to... To come to that, I think. Yeah. I want a personal story that's somehow transformative. You know, like, right, yeah. I mean, the story of um, stealing the owl, you know, has wonderful uh, bits and pieces to it. Really. So you, do you still have that story, that when you, the one that you wrote sitting on your desk on your own? No. No? No, long gone, unfortunately. Because yeah. it'd be interesting yeah. to, like, Wouldn't reread it? that. Now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was very proud of my Parker plunger pen. <laughs> 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 Had a little gold inside. Oh, I did. <laughs> oh, yeah, the little, yeah, because yeah, it had the bladder inside. Yeah. Right, right, right. When I first went to the boarding school in Bournemouth, we were writing with with wooden quill tipped pens that we dipped in an inkwell and wrote. Yeah, well, we, when I was. Hell. Right. You could stab a boy with those pens, too. Right, yeah, you yeah. could.
And you go home with blue fingers. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, blue shirt, blue pants, blue knees. It was yeah. all blue. Yeah. <laughs> Get everything. Blue and grey flannel. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah, and stuff would never come out. So, what's your process when you when you go to tell these stories, or when when you go to work on these stories? When you come to when you decide, let's talk about monkey because this is your most recent one, right? So, you're 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 learning it to record it right now, but I'm assuming that you're going to be telling it at some point well yeah um actually if we go back to to the odyssey okay what i'm doing with monkey is i'm i'm doing a podcast in which i'm actually reading the text okay so what i'm doing is between i'm reading the text in like 15 to 20 minute sections and between each section i talk about what just happened in the story okay and what's going to happen next but i wanted to actually do the literal text because it's so amazing and detailed now I've been asked to go tell the Odyssey in Summersworth in March without humanities to go God mm -hmm. bless them and um, so I've got to learn the Odyssey and the one of the problems with the stroke you know I've been talking about structure in stories one of the things with the stroke in the lower right is you lose your navigational ability so I have a hard time seeing how the road gets from here to Francistown. I'd have a hard time remembering which of the three turns down in Greenfield you take to get to Francistown, because my mind can't look ahead down the road and see the way. Well, and so there's the same problem in storytelling. So if you told me right now to tell Homer's Odyssey, in the first place I wouldn't know where to start. And then I'd be able to tell you incidents but I wouldn't really... I have to work on the segues and how it unfolds. And so, so basically, this story that you've known for years and years and years and you've told it hundreds, if not thousands of it times... It deleted. Holy cow. Hit delete. I mean, just gone. Like, if you asked me to tell the life of Caesar, which I told for 20 years, I wouldn't know where to start. I mean, really, it's not there. Now... What will happen, what I believe will happen and has to happen, mm -hmm. is to get ready for going to the library in Summersworth, I can listen to me telling Homer's Odyssey in my, on my audio book. Right. So that will put it back in, number one. Right. And number two, I'll read the text, you know, and I'll reassemble it. And in a way... It'll give me a new excitement about telling the story. It, it definitely gives me a renewed appreciation of what an incredible story. Listen, when I came back from the hospital, I didn't realize this was my house. I thought I was living in my cottage in Norfolk when I was 50 years old. Oh. And I walked into the house, and I kept saying to Nanette, I live here? This is beautiful. <laughs> this is really my house? Wow, this is great. <laughs> Well, it's good that you came back thinking that. And like, oh my gosh, this is a horrible house. Well, oh God, I made a mistake. <laughs> yes. Jesus. Yeah. No, no, no. So it's the same with the Odyssey. It's like, wow, this is so beautiful. You know, that's so. So I, I have a really like childlike, and post. I think post stroke, you do get a sort of childlike delight and appreciation in life. You know, you really treasure. What's that born again you know, thing? Right. It is born again, absolutely, yeah. because I was in another place for a rather long time Oof. and it, the first year of recovery was very difficult it was like what you described with COVID absolute exhaustion I just was laid out on the couch day after day just sleeping and trying to get by and then after a year 
almost instantly, just boom, I suddenly felt better. Huh. It's like, oh my God, I feel so much better. And then since then, I've been getting better every day. And, and now, so I still have those big memory holes. But other than that, I feel great. And I was very lucky that it was lower right. Lower left, you lose the ability to put thoughts with words. Oof. And you also lose body functions. Right. So I'm, I'm very relieved in a way. But anyway, a, a notice to anybody who happens to be thin, fit, and probably drinks too much coffee, <laughs> high blood pressure is the disaster. Yeah. My blood pressure went over 200 and I popped. Oh, wow. I didn't have my blood pressure under control. And I was in the middle of a crazy project. We were rebuilding this cabin. Which is, this cabin, by the way, is absolutely <laughs> gorgeous. It's, it's wood, rustic, and you might even be able to hear a, a, a pot-bellied stove crackling away. And it is, a, it is an Airbnb where we love to have writers <laughs> who can go swarming through the library. Yes, yes. And it's attached to a 1792 house. It is. Farmhouse, right? No, it was built by Amy Burnham as more of a stately house. You know, it's oh, a okay. significant house. It has a Rumsford fireplace with four fireplaces on it. You know, it's really a beautifully built house. It's extraordinary. I've only seen a couple of rooms. Uh, I was basing on the kitchen and the, the little... George, Wa George Washington was in his third year and didn't know if he was going to be elected president again. And the main issue on the table was whether or not to invade Canada. <laughs> Washington would be deeply upset if he came and said, you guys never invaded Canada. What's wrong with you? <laughs> so going back to the story, yeah. so the, 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 the script that you're working with, with Monkey, you've written that yourself though, right? Um, no, with Homer. Okay. Not with Monkey. Um, with, 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 with Homer and with Gilgamesh... And with the Odyssey, these are my own inventions. Yeah. Right. So I, I create my own script and I memorize it. Right. And, so, and with Gilgamesh, you were actually lucky enough to work with someone that translated the, the, the actual original... Oh, yes. ...cuneiform? Yeah. Torquild Jakobsen. Sumerian poetry and translation. Torquild Jakobsen uh, was my father-in-law for a while, and... He, um, he was a, a, and then those two are also Torquilles. And, and so he was a really respected um, Sumerian uh, translator, right. writer, and he was an extraordinary man. He was a seven-foot Dane, weighed about 250 to 300 pounds. He was a giant. And he lived in a house up here when I knew him, and, uh, but about an hour from here north. And so I would go up there and visit with him, and he, at five o'clock, um, he would ask me to come to the study, and we'd, um, I'd follow him, and he'd shamble off to the study, the enormous man, and, and sit there and um, start drinking his red wine, and we would talk about um, Gilgamesh. And then when we talked about Gilgamesh for a couple of hours, he liked to watch old black and white cowboy movies. <laughs> <laughs> so... We'd watch well, a cow we'd watch a cowboy movie. Well, hero stories. Yeah, yeah. You know, those cowboy movies are all hero stories, yeah. you know, one way or another. Right. Yeah. And so it was extraordinary to have that access to to the text because then I could continually say to him, 
what's going on here and what does this mean and who is this and, and have that inside information. And then with Monkey, A Journey to the West, we only had one translation by Arthur Whaley that, that really wasn't very good and very short and put out in the 50s. Mm -hmm. And Anthony C. U. Um, made this incredible translation in four volumes. And I got to meet and talk to him. Um, so again, with the story, I was able to say, Tony, uh, you know, what's going on with the epiderms and what are they? And Tony, what is the cave and the three stars? Why the cave of the slanting moon and three stars? And you say, oh, Sebastian. Now the three stars. <laughs> and oh, off we go. So that's why, you know, partially I want to do it in small, but Tony wanted me to read it. He loved the way I read it. But you know how that goes. So, so I'm enjoying <clears throat> just doing it this way. You know, I can do it on my own terms, my own way. Do you think you'll get around to a brief... I mean, I, I've read the abridged version, and it's a little bit bigger than part one, volume one of what you've got in front of me right now. I mean, it's a big story. And there's two, three, four. <laughs> so there's four, all right, four parts. And it's not just that, the density of it. Yeah, oh yeah. It's so dense. It is. Oh. It, it wasn't the easiest of reads that oh. I've ever had, to An be extraordinary honest. poetry, but that's mm -hmm. why I think you'll enjoy listening to it, because it begs to be read aloud, and I get to do a lot of my voices with it. Okay. And... And one of the joys of having recently listened to a lot of um, audible books on Edwardian stuff is listening to those voices. And so, you know, I've, I've really enjoyed doing the Patriarch's voice and really allowing myself a lot of fun. And it's very funny. It's, there are know, some amazingly funny parts in it. And the imagination is so extraordinary. And I don't think that people tend to think of the Asian culture as being funny and wildly imaginative. And so my hope is that more Western people will listen to Monkey and it'll make them think a little differently about... <laughs> right. Well, there was that TV show. The Asian sensibility. Right, when I, was at, when I was at high school, when I was at the, the secondary modern school, um, Monkey came out as a TV show. Really? In the, yeah, it was in the 70s. It was, it was black and white. Yeah. And it was all subtitled. And was it based on Monkey King? Yeah, yeah. Wow, I've got um, to look for that. A monkey, he's a crazy character, and I didn't yes. realize how crazy he was, and Wild that he was buried in the ground for, like, millions of years. Well, 500 years, actually, oh, under a mountain. And it, and it says, <laughs> Om Mani Padme Hum on the side of the mountain. That was after he pissed on Buddha's fingers. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Monkey was a very naughty person. Monkey, you're pissing on my finger, <laughs> says Buddha. <laughs> and then he has to, like, set himself right. He has to do the right thing, and it's a real... Kuan Yin, Kuan Yin. And, and the whole story is about Kuan Yin, the heavenly bodhisattva Kuan Yin, the goddess of compassion. She is up there. And so, oh, okay. so yeah. Kuan Yin... Is, is really the wonderful aspect. And Kuan Yin is Athena. They're really so exactly alike. Athena is a bit more hard-minded than Kuan Yin, but Kuan Yin is, is, is compassion and love and sweetness, and she looks after the most miserable people on earth. I mean, she enrolls Pigsy 
Yes. Who's the foulest, <laughs> dirtiest, nastiest piece of pigsy human? Yes. Oh, my sweet pigsy, says Kuan Yin, and picks him up and strokes him. You'll be okay, and kisses his cheek. So, you know, she has, she's the very picture of compassion. Mm-hmm. But she's also very stern minded and she's very powerful in heaven. You know, she's not, and um, she's a tiger. You know, well, she can change herself into whatever she wants, of right. course. But, but that, she will. Um, she will get Monkey released, and then Monkey with Pigsy and Sandy and the monk Tripitaka and the beautiful white horse, yes. they all have to go to India to get new translations of the Buddhist texts and bring them back to the Jade Temple on Aeole Mountain in the cave of the slanting moon and the three stars. Yes, on the Jade platform. And one of the things I, I really liked about monkey is you can see the, the influence of India absolutely in, in the stories and absolutely. it's like whoa hang on wait 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 this absolutely. is kind of like related to the Ramayana or yes so monkey you know and, and it's full of the philosophy of saying you know monkey is he his name means aware of vacuity ah. or you could say aware of nothingness so monkey says be vacuous spontaneous and freely changing if you can be those three things, you can cloud crawl and have fun in heaven. Oh, I've got one more to go. <laughs> vacuity. I have plenty of vacuity. Aware of nothingness. <laughs> well, it's, it's, that's the ultimate dharma, yeah. is to reach awareness of nothing. Yeah. It's yeah. very... Nothing is hard to yeah. get to. It's very zen <laughs> and very down. Very hard, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. So monkey is that wu, wu kung. Yeah. Yeah, I'm gonna have to listen to this podcast. It sounds. Oh uh, yeah, if it's you're talking about it as well as reading these four volumes, then it, it's going to be a lot better than the book I yeah, read. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the most touching things too, which makes so much sense. On on his travels, Monkey comes across a woodchopper, and he tries to get the woodchopper to come with him to become enlightened. And the woodchopper says, Are "You crazy? I'm a woodchopper." I don't need to be enlightened. I'm the best woodchopper on the mountain. And anyway, if I went off to be enlightened, who'd look after my old mother? And it's that you know, some people. It's only some people who have the need to do, to figure out what nothingness is. Yeah. Other people are perfectly happy in the forest of their axe. You know, right. don't bother them. Yeah. You know, that's their meditation. It that's, is. That's right. there now. Right. Chopping wood is is totally that meditation. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. And to be the best, and to look after your mother. Right. And, and then, you know, you, you've got everything you need. But then there are others who have the curse of curiosity. So monkeys' journeys also start, and this is another impulse to a lot of these stories, is monkey, and, and you know, um, Gilgamesh will say the same thing. They want to know why we die. Why right. will we die? If life is so wonderful and I'm like a god, why does the shadow of Yama spread over me? Why do we die? And Gilgamesh asked that question because he feels like a god. You know, he's so powerful. You know, he's he can fight Huawa, and he's part yeah. god, yeah. but he knows he's going to die, and he can't come to terms with death. And Homer must come to terms with death. You know, which he does by going to the underworld. Ulysses, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's that great line when um, Odysseus is in the underworld and he sees Achilles down there and he's walking around and he has a troop of men behind him and he says, Achilles, you know, he's treated like a king. He says, this isn't so bad. You're down here with a troop of men giving you honor. And, 
And he says, Odysseus, you fool. He said, I would rather be the lowest slave or the worst stick and dog farmer on the face of the earth than a king down here. Wow. <laughs> oh, yeah. That, I, Life is sweet. Yeah. I read the, you know, going go to Gilgamesh, because you and I both do it, but we're very different in how we do it. Because, I think because of where we came from and the, and the reasons that we started to tell it. The reason why I started to tell Gilgamesh is because both of my kids, who are now past this point by quite a ways, were learning it in sixth grade. Mm. And so I went into it from the point of view, it's like, they got these kids need to know the story properly, right? Inkidu has to be tamed, otherwise how can he tame Gilgamesh. But then you have to do the lovemaking scene with right. Enkidu. Right, so I use Which is such a fantastic it scene, is. but I guess you have a euphemism. I do. They had tea together. Oh, he dances with her. Right. Have a wonderful dance. <laughs> they have, they <laughs> dance for it. seven days and seven nights, and then he spends, Brilliant. right? Brilliant. And the teachers are like, oh, I see where he's going with that. <laughs> and the kids, if they studied later at college, they'll get. They'll be like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's, it's so, so my version of And when is, he was full of her beauty. Yeah. <laughs> right. And what, what's the other phrase that you use? He came, came on her like a, a summer like shower? A, like a sudden summer shower. Yeah. That's yeah. straight out of the story, yeah. Right. Which, which when, I, when I tell it for older people, yeah. I, I, I use that. Because Stunt, it's just, yeah. like you say, it's amazing. It's beautiful. It's like they wrote in a meta language. I'm telling right, you. right. Yeah. So my, my way of telling Gilgamesh is, is more geared towards getting kids enthusiastic about the epics. Yeah. Right? Whereas you come at it from a more studious side, right? From a more... I was going to say thunder and lightning. Well, that as well. That as well. Thunder and lightning, yeah. And, there, and those episodes are so extraordinary to tell, you know, the Wildwood and the Huawa and, yes, all of that. Yeah. Just extraordinary. Yeah, I haven't told Gilgamesh in a while. It's such a good story. It, it really, really is, isn't and it? it? Just, yeah, when I first... This is what I was coming to. The first, the only version that I had was a teeny tiny slender little translation. Yeah. And when I read it, I thought, it's all right, but it's not great. You know, yeah. it, it just didn't touch me. Right? Yeah. It didn't, it didn't feed my soul or anything like that. Yeah. And then when my kids were learning it in school, I was like, I, I know that this isn't the full story. They're missing so yeah. much out. Yeah. Yeah. And so I went back to my thin little version and I was like, there's something in here, because from when I first read it to, to then, yeah. I've been doing all this other storytelling, and then you, when, you, when you've done so much storytelling, you've read so many of these stories, whether they're folk and fairy tales or epics like the Ramayana, yeah. and you, you start to see the cracks, you start to yeah. see the gaps in the story that they've edited out, yeah. Yeah. right? And it's like, yeah. Yeah. so what yeah. went in here? And that's yeah. when you start to get Stephen Mitchell's version, yeah. you get Gardner's yeah. version, yeah. Right. and then you're like, oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. And then you totally fall into it. Yeah. And so it's the, the primer versions, if you will, even if they're like Penguin classics, they're yeah. not, they're not the go-tos always. Sometimes yeah. you've got to poke around and, and find those really, really good versions. And it seems to me that Tony, what was his last name? Torkild Jacobson. No, no, the monkey one. Oh, the monkey. Yeah, um, t- Tony Yu. Tony Yu. Um, Anthony Yu. Yeah. Anthony C. Yu. Yeah. yeah. So it seems to me that I've read the the abridged version. Yeah. Which is deep and heavy, and it has wonderful language in it, but. 
bomb. Yeah, yeah, I <laughs> it's really just wanna... unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> it totally is. And you know, and he and and so you'll go through a paragraph, and this, and then the poem says, and you get this half-page poem, and they love these rhythms of three beats up, three beats down, da 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 da. Da, 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 da. And so the poems have this lovely sing-song nature to them, and then you go back into the prose again with these sentences that can go on forever and ever and curl around and climb <laughs> yes. a mountain and come back. You know. Almost need a ruler to follow them. Yeah, 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 yeah. I do. <laughs> <laughs> so those poems, talking about the poems that are in, interdispersed throughout Monkey, um, the journey to the to the to the West. Anthony Wu, Anthony Wu, did he find? He's translating the poems, yes, not just from the manuscript of Monkey, but like from the. No, know. I think they're right in the manuscript that he would have found that the poem because it, the, it'll do a paragraph of narration, and then the equivalent in a poem, which is a detailed description of the flowers and the mountain and the animals. And but where are those poems coming from originally? Like before Monkey happened. Um, I think they're right there in the text. Okay, all right. So the. It's a novel written by Wu Chung in the 16th century. Okay. And I'm not sure... So he, I think, was getting his material. So he's a novelist, but he's using his novel writing and his poetry technique just interchangeably. So he's, okay. he's switching from prose to poetry to prose to poetry to prose to poetry as he goes, and you, and you get used to it. And at first, the poems seem very dense, and you sort of want to get back to the story... And especially in the first two episodes, I'm having to say to people, just allow the density of this detail just to be, you know, yeah. don't, don't try and, yeah. Yeah. But it's supposed to be based on a true story. Oh, yes. Of a monk that... Of a monk who's, who, who takes a 10-year journey to India to get these texts. And at, at the time he leaves, the emperor has forbidden any foreign traveler. So he actually has to go underground but by the time he gets back, um, they've discovered that you know he's made this amazing ten-year journey and he's bringing back these extraordinary texts. So when he comes back, he's actually celebrated, and the emperor is very happy that he brought these texts back. Lucky yeah. thing, otherwise you would have had his head chopped off. Right? Yes, right. <laughs> don't go against the emperor. You see, <laughs> no. it sort of adds to the wonder of the story that he's willing to become an outlaw to go and find these sacred Buddhist texts and bring them back to the Jade Temple right. in the country of Aeoli. And the characters that in the book that he travels with, they they are also outlaws. Yes, yes, yes. Pigsy and Sandy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sandy's a Sandy's a, a soldier who's become a coward. <laughs> right. <laughs> Pigsy is Pigsy. Yeah. yeah. And then when Monkey is released from the mountain, Kuan Yin gives the priest a leather cap that he can put on That's Monkey's right. head. That's right. yeah, yeah, yeah. And by saying "Om Mani Padme Hum," the the priest can control the leather cap, squeeze Monkey's head if he's doing the wrong thing. And then Monkey's weapon is a little gold pin that he keeps behind his ear, and he can pull that out and turn it into a 3,000-pound cudgel if he wants. Yeah. Yeah. He can turn himself into anything he wants, which is so wonderful. Yeah, he can grow the... Because there's echoes of Hanuman. Yeah, 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 yeah. All over it, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and I just did a terrific section with the patriarch Sabodi who teaches him all he needs to know to go and be monkey. You know, it's really, I got, I got yeah, it's a terrific story, and it's just yeah. wonderful. 
So when you're performing live in person, which you haven't done for a long time because of COVID and because of your stroke, what 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 gives you the most pleasure? What other than the kids coming up to you afterwards and saying, "I was there." <laughs> What what's what floats your boat when you're telling a story? I like to be very physical. Yeah, I like to be very um, very strong on the stage. Like I, I like to. By the time I finish telling, the hair on the back of my neck should be wet. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> if I'm not sweating, I'm not telling. Yes. I like it to be very physical and very in my body. I tell from the pit of my stomach, and I tell from the bottom of my voice, and I tell passionately. Yeah. So I like to be completely absorbed by it. And, you know, people could come running in and out of the room, I keep telling, you know. And, and I think, you know, it's the physicality in the voice is so much of the telling, I think. Yeah, I you think know, you're right. It's a very performance-based art for me. I like to be very in my body, in my telling. And then allowing the, the voice and the language, and, and almost that feeling of sculpting the language while you tell. My friend Matt's always trying to figure out the language before he tells, and I keep telling, just forget about it, just tell, for God's sake. Yeah, yeah. When, I, when I've taught kids, it's interesting, because you know, I have them write out the story first, and then we, work, we, we break the story down into scenes, nice. so that they can imagine the story. That's how I see it, yeah. Right, right. And when they, get to, when they get to perform, sometimes the kids will be like, I want my piece of paper in front of me. Yeah. And... What I tend to, what I've done in the past is I've been fairly close to them. Yeah. So I'm, I'm in hands reach of that piece of paper, and they're telling the story and they're kind of tripping over the words because they're looking at the yeah. piece of paper. And yeah. I'll slide the piece of paper away and I'll let it yeah, fall on the floor. Absolutely. And they look at me with horror. Yeah. But that's when the story comes Take alive. Take off. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I had a, a there was a wonderful man lived on the hill just up the road here who had terrific New Hampshire stories and I told the family I wanted to come over and record his stories mm -hmm. and when I got there his daughter-in-law had carefully written them out in a sort of school almost schoolgirl English mm -hmm. you know and he was going to read the story and I was like, no. And they said, but, you know, when he just tells his acts and it's hard for people to... And I was like, no. That's the whole point, no. right? I know, I was just distraught. Because that's, yeah. No, um, because then it doesn't become his story. It becomes a story that's been translated and telling changed and its lens. And speaking and writing are two different things. The yeah. laws of grammar do not apply to your tongue. And if they do, take that shackle off and spit it out. <laughs> right. <laughs> no grammar here, thank you. Grammar-free zone. <laughs> so my son... Miles is now a very accomplished rapper. That's right. Under the name of Millie's and Blanco. And I listen to his language, you know, and he's sculpting. And it's just beautiful and it's complete free form, you know. And it's been fascinating over the last four or five years watching the evolution of his language. And he's now doing what he calls higher level rap, you know, and it's much less of the sort of bombastic cursing and much more of the fluid language. And he said, Dad, I do the same thing you were trying to do. Tell weird poetry in front of a band. <laughs> but he's having a ball. <laughs> he's making more money than you are. <laughs> he sure is. <laughs> God bless him. Couldn't happen to a nicer guy. So yeah. And he feeds off my story ideas and stuff, you know. That's he knows great. the big stories. And he's in Boston, right? 
So it's not actually New York City now. Oh, he is he's in more New, New York, York City? City. Yeah. Okay. He's very out of Boston, though. I mean, he has six one seven tattooed on his neck. Right, I did see that <laughs> in the videos that I watched of his work. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And there were some references to Boston. Oh yeah, lots because yeah. that's where he really came of came of age. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So when you first came into storytelling, you mentioned that you saw Brother Blue and you saw Odds, and that they were the ones that kind of popped that bubble for you, allowing you to be like, oh, there's mm -hmm. this. Mm -hmm. um, were, there any, were there any people that influenced you, or did you just dive into it wholeheartedly by yourself and, and find your way through it? <sighs> yeah, there were some influences, because I was, I was very interested in people who were doing sort of verbal jazz and freeform... There was a playwright, John Lipsky, I was very influenced by in Boston. I loved his work, uh -huh. and he was a big influence on me. And, and then, yeah, I think, you know, obviously some of those great actors, you know, and and also, you know, if you're going to do an English voice, you want to bounce off those great actors and think about those voices, you know. I mean, Gilgood, what Gilgood yes. does with his voice, you know. Yeah. Gilgood can pause like no one on earth. Yeah. And, you know, when you can pause... You know what you're doing, right? You know it's the silence that shows how good you are. Yes, you know. I, I would agree with that. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, sometimes you got to hold your breath. <laughs> and when you first start playing around with that, it's the yeah. scariest thing. <gasps> but then you then you get the audience say, "Wait, what's he's yeah. something wrong?" And boom, drop yeah. it in. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so exciting when that happens. You yeah. see people's reaction. I love yeah. it. I love yeah, it. Yeah. How do you feed yourself artistically? Right now, hugely with audiobooks. Yeah. And, you know, I was an avid reader. And then I think it got harder for me to read once I had to go to specs. And I'm very annoyed by these mm -hmm. progressive specs or whatever. And then I discovered Audible. And I've just been listening. I've been listening to a lot of history. And I've been listening to great, um, you know, novelists from, you know, that's so I feed myself like that a lot. If you turn around and look at what's behind you... Oh, yes, I know what's behind me. <laughs> that oh. feeds me. Yeah. We're looking straight across a mountain across the Rhinebrook Valley. And so nature really feeds me and my big dogs. Yeah. <clears throat> so twice a day I go running with my two big dogs in nice. nature. And the, the Great Pyrenees... My Catahoula likes to be on, and when he's done with the walk, he's straight for home. The Great Pyrenees will stop on the top of that hill, and she'll stand there for 15, 20 minutes and not budge. And at first, I was a little like, come on, baby, let's go home. Now I've gotten into the meditation. I just stand with her absolutely still and get to that place of nothing and emptiness where I'm just nature. I'm just hearing the trees and the water and the wind and nothing else and that I love getting to that place and the Great Pyrenees takes me there and then and we're both ready but like, okay we'll go home now you know <laughs> and it's almost like achieving that but being very still outside and I love living in this house you know yeah, the, the 1792 house and this room of, of really heaven so that's and then of course Nanette you know having having a wonderful partner is so huge and enormous and and then that's, Everything. she's really into Dickinson. She does the whole poetry thing. We did the Emily Dickinson 
together and created a whole Emily Dickinson show, Emily Dickinson Rock. And we took Emily Dickinson poetry and created rock songs and did a whole album. And we toured the show around I didn't Emily know that. Dickinson Rock. And it was a really wonderful show. We loved doing it. Is it reco- you've recorded it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We have Emily Dickinson Rock. Well, Sebastian, thanks for letting me interview you and spend some time in this beautiful space that you've got here with the fire crackling away in the background <laughs> and the hills of New Hampshire surrounding us. In a truly frigid day. Oh, yeah, uh, 19 degrees. Uh, <laughs> yes, yes. Fahrenheit. No, I feel very <laughs> lucky to be here. And, it's, and you know, it's lucky to love sharing with you. I loved my chat with Sebastian, sitting next to the open stove in a room filled with books and great company. I hope you enjoyed it too. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, be sure to check out other episodes. And if you think I should interview a certain folk and fairy tale, myths and legends, epic storyteller, then send me an email. Maybe I can get them on this show soon. You can find me and my work on Facebook and on my website at Simon Brooks Storyteller. Diamond Street, yep, that's me. And Instagram, Simon M. Brooks. A shout out to Chris Jett for creating and recording and letting me use the wonderful music for my podcast. His band is called Blackpool Mecca. Check them out. They have a new album coming out soon. You can help keep this podcast alive and support my craft by becoming one of my Patreons and paying anything from a dollar for an episode that you enjoyed to a regular monthly subscription. In return, you get extras, early releases and exclusive content on my work. You can do that by going to www.patreon.com forward slash Simon Brooks. If you can't join my wonderful tribe of Patreons, then help me out by doing something you can do. I would be incredibly grateful if you could leave a review on Podbean, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, wherever you found this episode. It doesn't take long and it helps others find this podcast too. Thanks for being here with me. I know there are lots of other places that you could be, so I greatly appreciate it. Until next time, be healthy, be happy, and share the stories you love. Cheers. It's just a story. <laughs> <laughs>